Hi, my name is Christy, and you're listening to a public podcast. If you want more information about anything going on here at Public Church, visit our website, publicchurch.com. Thanks for listening. You know, for our podcast audience, the song we just sang is called Faithfulness by Hillsong Worship. And the song always reminds me of public church's story. See, from our very first day in January 2014, all the way up to today, we have really, it seems like, countless stories of God's faithfulness and just how he's come through for us. And I think it's vital that we take time and remember how he's been faithful. And in fact, if, if you're kind of new and, and you want to grab one of us that's been around since the beginning, we could probably bore you to tears with stories that cause tears in us because we're looking back on these memories of times that we're like, we don't know what we're going to do, and here's what God did. And we're not sure how this is going to work out, and look what God did. There's all kinds of stories in our past. And I think it's really, really important that in this season we remember those stories of his faithfulness. Because some of you know this, if you don't know, we're in a season and very early in the process, we're working on building, building a new gathering space, building a new children's area. And if you're wondering why, then just touch the person that's about an inch and a half away from you um, and maybe check and see if they have deodorant on. I mean, we need some more room. And so we can all like visually see the need, but it can be intimidating to take a leap of faith. Because this process is going to require resources that we don't currently have, and we're going to have to trust that God will prove himself faithful once again. So I just want to encourage you guys that uh, about a week and a half ago, we had someone in our public church family that actually donated $25,000 to our church. Can we praise Jesus for that? Is that not amazing? And so I share that to remind us that God's been faithful since day one. He's still faithful now. So let's keep stepping into his plans that are beyond our imagination. And let's watch him keep showing off. You guys with me on that? And one of the ways that we can keep stepping into his plans is to seize the opportunities that he puts in front of us. And this Wednesday night, we have a phenomenal opportunity to love our community. Anybody know what's going on here Wednesday night? Trunk or treat, yes, it's going to be awesome, six to eight here on our campus, and we could talk about the details, but the thing I think is important for us to know today, three days out from this, is why. Why do we do trunk or treat? And it's real simple. It's because we look beyond events to build relationships, and so you're going to see some pictures from last year's trunk or treat, and first off, you should come just to see these cute kids. Um, The sheep, Batman, the next picture's awesome. Bob and Apples and Spider-Man showed up. You can bring your pet. I mean, this is a phenomenal time. But again, all of this fun is about us having the opportunity to serve our community and build a relationship with them. See, we want to, on Wednesday night, build relationships with people we don't know. We want to deepen relationships with people that we barely know. And here's the real crux of that. We believe, we're absolutely convinced that Jesus uses relationships to bring true life change in people. Because that's what he's done in us. And so we want to see him do that in others. And so a lot of times what happens is people meet some of Jesus' people, and hopefully they're not turned off by us, but they're like, man, that's awesome. I want to know more. And then after they meet us, they meet Jesus himself. So Wednesday night is a huge part of that. So if you follow Jesus, and look, I know that not all of you do, and if you don't, we're thrilled that you're here, and and I've got some special stuff for you in just a moment. But, But for those of us who follow Jesus, would we commit for the next three days to pray for trunk or tree in this way? Pray for the relationships 
that we're going to build and deepen on Wednesday night. And if you want to serve and help us do that, you want to have a trunk, you want to be at the welcome table, email nextgen at publicchurch.com. We would love for you to help us. But let's specifically, as we're serving, as we're preparing for this, let's look for the relationships that God wants us to build. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I thank you that we can open up our campus for special events like this. And I thank you that the purpose is so much bigger than the event. So I pray that you would bring people in our community to us, that you would give us the courage to invite our neighbors and invite our friends to this incredible, really just party, a great time on Halloween. And as we are there, I pray that we would not be consumed with just managing our trunk or our role in the event, but we would be consumed with people who are made in your image, who you love, who you brought there for us to build or deepen relationships with. And so I pray that every single one of us that serves, that we be able to do this that you give us eyes to see beyond just trunk or treat and to see the people that you love and that we get to love for your name's sake, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray, amen. Now today is a really, really special day for public church. And we actually host three different gatherings, 9.30, 11.30, and 5.30. So if it's crowded, come back to the 5.30 sometime. That's where we have the most room. Like if you're like, I don't like the crowd, the 5.30 is for you. But tonight, the 5.30 is different. Most Sundays the exact same. Tonight it's different because we're hosting our worship night. And so all day what we're doing is we're really preparing for this really special night. So I want to give you permission that if you've only got time to come to one gathering, you can go to the bathroom and not come back. No judgment here. Okay, just come back at 530. No one will judge you. It's fine. Uh, Tom's one of our elders. He's going to do that. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, but totally fine if you do that. Um, it's going to be an awesome night tonight. And so what we want to do this morning is really prepare for it. Because I hope that a lot of us will come back for tonight for the special things that Jesus is going to do. So to prepare for worship night, to talk about worship, we first need a common definition. Because if we were to go around the room, we'd have 100, 200 different definitions of what worship is. And some of you are honest, would just be like, I have no clue, so help me. So here's a common definition. Let's read it together. Worship is our response, both personally and collectively, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. And that's from Louis Giglio a couple years ago, our worship pastor, Cody Disney and I. We looked for a definition and we couldn't find one better than that. And so here's what the first part tells us, that worship is about me and us. Worship is about me and us, personally and collectively. We're going to talk a lot more about the middle part, but to skip to the end, it also means this. Worship must include our words and our actions. We cannot separate those. So the goal is that as we end this gathering and then tonight, we're going to have an opportunity to worship with our words through song. But the hope is that as we leave this gathering and as we leave the 530 tonight, that our lives would align with the songs we sing well beyond just our time in the space. That our whole lives, everything we do, would be our song of worship to him. And so that's the hope. And so, again, you still may be sitting here saying, look, I don't even follow Jesus like, why do I care about worship and responding to God? Like that, I don't even care about that. Well, here's what I, one thing I think we all care about. We all care about exceptional stories, especially when they're unexpected. 
I mean, wives, help me out here. You will sit with your husband and watch sports in her top 10. Not because you like sports, because it's the only thing interesting about sports in your world, right? Anybody with me? Like when we come across something exceptional, we will give it our time. Or anybody like exceptional food? Mmm, mmm. It's getting close to lunch, isn't it? One of the guys I coach with, Blake Gideon, he and his wife went to Chicago. And if you had the time, I could pretty much in, in great detail describe the pizza that they ate because it was so exceptional that Blake Gideon came back and described it to me. And look, I want to go to Chicago, and I don't know what's there besides the pizza. Like, really, I'm, I'm trying to justify a trip to Chicago, and really I'm like, I just want to eat the pizza that he described. Because anybody with me on that? Anybody been to Chicago? Okay, thank you're from Chicago. So yeah, you, you know what I'm talking. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate the support. I mean, I, I want to take me home with you. I like want to, you know, just uh, can, we'll talk later, okay? I mean, but really, like he, the way Gideon described the pizza, I want it. And the thing is, when we hear about things that are exceptional, we want to hear the stories behind it, especially when the exceptional is unexpected. So today, as we talk about worship, we're going to look at a story that starts with some really unfortunate events, and then the unexpected happens. So even if you don't follow Jesus, even if you don't care about worship, I think this story is worth your time. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts 16. If you have your Bible app, you can use the YouVersion app and go to Acts 16. It'll be on the screen in a moment. But I want to let you guys first know about our main characters, Paul and Silas. So Here's what happens to them, and here's how it turns unfortunate. They're simply traveling around and just telling people about Jesus, not doing anything wrong. And as they tell people about Jesus, they come to this city called Philippi. Well, in Philippi, there's a woman who's demon-possessed. Now, look, you don't follow Jesus. You may not believe in demons, but let, let's just answer this question to get us on the same page. If demons are real, is this woman better off with the demon or without the demon? Come on, 1130. Candace, try to wake you up. Can you, like, we're better. Like, would you rather be demon-possessed or not, people? Not. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for the confidence, okay? I was a little worried about you for a moment. We don't want to be possessed by a demon. So Paul and Silas roll in, and they cast the demon out. They free this woman from demonic oppression. And so this should be a great thing, right? They should be celebrated. The problem is... When she had the demon inside her, the demon gave her psychic abilities or the ability to tell fortunes. And so people wanted to know their future or dirt on somebody else. And so they would like pay money to her for her to tell them these psychic thoughts. So when the demon is gone, what else is gone? Her money. And not only her money, but she was a slave to this guy who was making a ton of money off of her. So all of a sudden, here's how uh, it's described. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. And look, anytime you take somebody greedy and Jesus interrupts their cash flow, they're not happy with Jesus and his people. I'm just saying. Greed, Jesus interrupting cash flow, bad thing. So this guy is ticked. He's mad. I mean, he should be happy. This woman doesn't have a demon, but he's mad because his cash flow is gone. So he incites this mob. They have false accusations, but the mob mentality prevails. And they end up grabbing Paul and Silas. They rip off their outer garments. They may have had a, like an undershirt on or may not, but they just start to beat them with rods because of these false accusations. Unfortunate circumstances, right? And this is where we pick up the story 
in Acts 16, verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, here's what that means. At this point, they're bleeding. Like if they do have an undershirt on, they've been beat through that undershirt so that's ripped and they're bleeding through this. So when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. That word safely means securely. In other words, like, hey, don't let these dangerous guys escape. Are they really that dangerous? I mean, come on. They just like freed a woman from demonic activity. Anyway, but they're considered dangerous criminals. We know that because of verse 24. It says, having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is like being put in maximum security prison. So the inner prison, here's the best way to describe it. There's generally one door in and out. And when that door closes, all light, gone. Airflow, gone. So can you imagine the smell? And keep in mind, there's like not a place to use the bathrooms. They're just using the bathroom in the inner prison. There's no airflow. The heat is just, they're sweating. This smells terrible. And this is where they are. All because they were telling people about Jesus and cast a demon out of a girl. And then... It says that they're also, their feet are put in the stocks. Now, I'm not very flexible. If I really wanted to illustrate this, I would do a split, but then I wouldn't make it to worship night because I'd be in the hospital. So, um, but the point is that they would put their feet in the stocks in such a way that they would generally spread them out to the point of discomfort. So that the whole time they're in this place that's completely dark, where they're just sweating profusely, that has this awful stench. Their legs are also stretched to the point that they're in continual pain. I think we could agree this is unfortunate. And so the next verse, the first two words, make sense. It says this, about midnight. So my question is, anybody walk in feeling like it's midnight in your life? You're like, look, I know it's noon, but in my life, in my heart, in my world, it's midnight. Maybe you rolled in and you actually rode here with your spouse, but your marriage is over. You don't even sleep in the same room anymore. You just showed up because that's what you're supposed to do. And maybe you haven't told your kids yet. You haven't told your friend, but it's midnight in your marriage. Or maybe your loved one got a diagnosis. It's terminal. You really don't know where to even turn or... or what to even think to begin to process this. Maybe there's so much conflict in your family that it makes Jerry Springer look G-rated. I mean, your family's just jacked up and you're like, look, I'm caught in the middle of this and I just feel hopeless. Like, I don't even know how I can be part of a solution. I don't even know if there even is a solution. Or maybe you've been praying for your baby boy since he was a baby and he's in his 20s now. Your prayer is simple. Jesus, let him follow you. But for whatever reason, over the course of his 20 years, he's done everything but follow Jesus. And you just don't understand. But you know it's midnight. Maybe it's addiction. And you're trapped with seemingly no escape. You went to rehab once. You went twice. You're like, maybe I should go back. I mean, it's not working. And you just feel hopeless. Or perhaps the loneliness is just really suffocating. Last Saturday night was like all the previous Saturday nights where you didn't have anything to do. You just sat at home by yourself. 
And even though we're seven days away from the next Saturday night, you, you can't even bear the thought of getting to yet another weekend with no invitations, no opportunities to hang out with friends, just another lonely night at home. I think if we're honest, we all know the feeling for the clock to strike midnight. When hope is nowhere to be found and all the world around you just seems to be lost. Welcome to Paul and Silas's reality. I mean, they're doing good things, helping people, setting people free from demons, and now they're in this maximum security prison, totally in darkness with this awful stench. The heat is seemingly suffocating. So what do they do? Well, the rest of verse 25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is the unexpected, exceptional response. I mean, I didn't see this coming. I don't think any of us saw this coming. We're not like, okay, it's midnight, hope is lost, the darkness has settled in, and they're praying, and those prayers are overflowing into songs to God. Here's how one scholar described the situation. He said, though their bodies were still bleeding and tortured in the stocks. Think about that. They've been beaten. They're still bleeding, probably. No one's cleaned them. So though their bodies were still bleeding and tortured in the stocks, their spirits rose above suffering and made the prison walls resound with their song. Is that, yeah, that's amazing. You know what they're doing in this moment? They are worshiping. And if we go back to our definition of worship, they're not worshiping God for what he's done because it looks like he hasn't done anything good. If they're honest, like, you know what following God got me? Beaten and in prison. But you know why they're worshiping him? Because of who he is. Because even in the darkness, even in the stench, even in the shackles, they trust his faithfulness and they trust his goodness. And then the end of verse 25 is something I think we could easily miss, but it's a game changer in your life and in my life. The end of verse 25 says, and the prisoners were listening to them. See, our adversity has an audience. We need to understand that our adversity has an audience. When the clock strikes midnight in our lives, it's easy for us to get self-consumed with a woe-is-me mindset. And look, to be honest, it's normal. At midnight, it's easy for us to think things like this. Look, my marriage is over because my husband's crazy. Like, why did he change like this? This isn't the man I married, and why can't he be like so-and-so? Or, or we think, now, why did she get sick? Jesus, she loves you. And we hate to admit it, but we think things like, why couldn't it be somebody else? Or how did I get in this jacked up family? Like, what did I do to deserve this? I'm the only one that's normal, and my definition of normal skewed because they're all so messed up. Like, how did I get stuck in this, God? And we begin to ask these questions, questions like, God, do you even hear my prayers? For over 20 years, I've gotten on my knees and prayed for my son, and he still doesn't follow you. Are you even listening, God? Begin to think things like this. Jesus, if you're real, I've tried everything. 
been to rehab multiple times. Can I even break this addiction? Or is this just me? Am I just going to waste my short life away? And then you know what? Everybody has tons of friends. Like I see it on their social media. When I walk by, I hear them talking about places they've been and people they've hung out with. Why doesn't anyone invite me? Why am I so lonely? What's wrong with me? And look, when it's midnight in my life, I think those same things. They're very normal for us to think, but we can't get stuck there because we have to understand that our adversity has an audience. So for Paul and Silas, what if they'd got stuck in that woe is me? What if they were sitting there going, I can't believe we're in prison. Man, this isn't right. This is unjust. Look what we did for that girl. Man, how do we get put in this place? This is terrible. Then what kind of message would that have sent to the other prisoners? See, parents, we need to understand our kids are watching. For all of us, our coworkers, our fellow students, they're watching the cashier at the grocery store that we just happen to end up in her line every week, she's watching. People we don't even know are watching. Our adversity has an audience. So who is our audience? And then what are they seeing in us? When they're watching us at the midnight hour, what are they seeing in us? Here's what they were seeing in Paul and Silas. The word for listening the, the, the original language, it's actually this rare verb, and it means that they experienced joy as they were listening to them. And this joy usually came from listening to music. Here's what all that means. The other prisoners had never seen anything like this. Like nobody got put in maximum security prison in that stench and started saying, man, I'm gonna praise Jesus. Nobody got stuck in there and said, God, you're so good. Nobody. They'd never seen it before. And they were amazed and refreshed that somebody could possibly respond like this because they saw worship. So are we worshiping God just for what he's done? Or when it's midnight and we can't even see our hand in front of the face because the darkness is surrounding us, are we still worshiping God for who he is? Our adversity has an audience. What are they seeing? And then in verse 26, here's what happened because Paul and Silas chose to worship. It says, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Here's what we see here. Our worship is a liberating weapon. Why is it a weapon? Because we are in a battle for our freedom and the freedom of others. And worship is a liberating weapon in the hand of our all-powerful God. And God uses this weapon called worship to vanquish oppression and usher in freedom. See, Jesus wants to shake the foundations of our prison. Jesus wants to open locked doors, even the doors that you never thought you'd walk through. Jesus wants to break our chains and shatter the strongholds that keep us down. And you may be like, nah, this is a bunch of hype. Look, this isn't hype. The author of this book, his name is Luke. He was extremely well-educated. He was actually a doctor. And you know how he wrote this? He researched 
thoroughly for both the books he wrote. He wrote the book of Luke, an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And he wrote this book called Acts, an account of the rise and birth of Jesus' church. He researched this. So this isn't hype. This is history. And what was history in this prison, God wants to do fresh in you and me today. See, the fact is that all of us walked in today and we got some kind of chain. For every single one of us, in some way, we're captives and we're being held in prison, in the darkness, in the stench, and it's midnight. And our worship is a liberating weapon that can break the chains. That's what Paul and Silas did. The chains were broken. And notice the jailer's response, verse 27. It says, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So here's what he did. He saw that the prison doors were open, and he said, oh, no, this isn't good. My life is over. Because here's what happened to jailers whose prisoners escaped. They were tortured, and they were eventually executed. So this jailer thought, man, hope is gone. They've all left. I'm just going to go ahead and end it myself. And maybe you're at a point where you feel like you're so wrapped up in your prison and your darkness that you thought the same thing. That you thought that self-harm is really the only way to go, that suicide doesn't sound so bad to you. If you walked in today, then know that verse 28 is for you. It says this in verse 28. Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Know that the 1130 gathering for you is Jesus crying out and saying, Do not harm yourself, for I am here. And what happens in the next verse is it says, And the jailer called for lights. Would you call for lights today in your darkness? One of Jesus' other followers, John, he wrote this. He said, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you walked in thinking that self-harm was your only option, would you let Jesus shine his light in your darkness? Would you listen to his cry to say, no, it looks hopeless. It feels like the whole world is lost, but I have a hope for you. And look, if that's you, please, please. Before you leave here today, talk to someone at the Info Hub. It's in the lobby. They can get you connected with counselors in our church who would love to walk with you through this season of darkness. And so the jailer, he feels hopeless. (laughs) But the lights came on. And when the lights came on, it says this. He called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. I mean, he's, he's trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? He's still in the shackles and he says this. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
What's he asking for when he asks this question? Here's what he's asking. He's saying, can I be forgiven? You know the chains that he just wrapped around him again as he just put two innocent men in maximum security prison. He's like, can I be forgiven for that? I just did it. Can I have light shine in my darkness? Is it possible for hope to enter my hopeless existence? Here's what he's asking for. He's asking for all that Jesus and only Jesus offers because he died on the cross for that jailer and for you and me and because he rose again for that jailer and for you and me. And only Jesus can help us find hope when all the world seems lost. But here's the question. How did the jailer know to ask the question? How did he know to go to Paul and Silas and ask about freedom and ask about salvation? The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps he had heard the story of Jesus before, but the text only gives us one way that he knew. He knew because they worshiped. He was part of the audience to their adversity. And in the midnight hour when they chose to praise Jesus, he said, I've never seen that before. And whatever it is that you have, I want to know more about. And so worship was a liberating weapon, not just for Paul and Silas, but for the jailer for his audience. And so here's what they say in verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to save families. Families that feel like there's no hope and you're stuck in generational cycles. Jesus is coming for you. And they said, just believe. That word means to put your trust in him. Trust the results in action. In verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Check this out. Paul and Silas could have walked out of the prison. Do you remember? It says the doors were open. The chains fell off of them. But Paul cared more about the soul of the jailer than his own personal freedom. Paul cared more about the jailer getting spiritual freedom than he did about himself getting physical freedom. And he didn't walk out because he could see the chains on the jailer. And for the guy that put him in the stocks in the inner prison, he stopped and told him about Jesus who died and rose again for him. And you know what happened that day in the prison for that jailer? The chains fell off, people. <laughs> and Jesus began to change everything in him and in his entire household. And we know that because in verse 33, it says this, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Look, they had had these wounds the whole time, but he'd never noticed why did he notice now? Because when Jesus changes everything in us, he opens our eyes to notice ways we can serve people that we never saw before. So he's like, man, you guys have been bleeding, the blood's dried, I gotta clean you up. Look, if you think you follow Jesus, but there's no evidence of life change, you gotta reevaluate if you really follow Jesus. Because when we follow him, he changes us. So do you want to follow him? Do you want the hope that he offers? And if you do, like this jailer, 
you can just say, Jesus, I'm yours. I believe, Jesus, that you died and rose again. Jesus, just forgive me. Break these chains. Give me life. Jesus, here. There's not a magic prayer. It's just the cry of your heart to tell him that you want to give it all to him. And look, if you do that today, then please tell us because what happened to the jailer next, we want to happen to you. At the end of verse 33, it says, he was baptized at once. He and his family... And so here's the thing. On November 11th, we're going to have baptisms. And so would you please email the office or tell us at the info hub or find me afterwards and say, man, today I found hope in Jesus because somebody on our team wants to meet with you and talk with you about Jesus and explain that baptism is our chance to go public and show everyone that we now follow him. And we want you to be baptized as quickly as possible on November 11th, just like this jailer and his whole household were baptized. That's our hope for all of us. So do you want to follow him? And look, just to be super clear, when we choose to follow him, it doesn't mean that everything resolves. And you know that. I know that we're smart enough. We've watched enough people live that we know the truth. Everything's not going to resolve in this life. And it's just not going to happen. But the offer for Jesus is actually better than everything resolving in this life. It's that Jesus joins us in the mess. And that at midnight, there is light with Jesus. And in the prison, there is freedom with Jesus. That's what he offers us. And that he is the only one who knows us and who created us and can on this side of earth before we enter into eternity who can begin to put the broken pieces of our heart back together so we can experience at least some form of restoration while we're here. So will you follow him? Because if you will, here's what's going to happen and here's what... Man, I just want this for all of us so bad. It says in verse 34, he brought them up into his house and set food before them. Check this out. He keeps serving them because they probably hadn't eaten in a day. And he's like, I follow Jesus. Now I serve people because that's what Jesus' followers do. And then it says at the end, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I mean, when we follow Jesus, we get joy. Not the kind of joy that we get on a Friday night for just a little bit and it's gone by Saturday morning. Not the kind of joy that everybody seems to be chasing. No, we get lasting joy that never ends. So again, will we follow him? And then for those of us who already follow him, will we recognize that our adversity has an audience? That at the midnight hour, there are people around us watching so what are they seeing? And will we begin to leverage worship as a liberation weapon? So, so here's the invitation for all of us. We're going to sing a couple songs, and then we're going to have worship night tonight. And so the hope for all of us is that as we begin to worship, that we would leverage this liberation weapon, not just for me, but for someone who's not going to come to worship night. That as we begin to sing, 
We would sing, not just for our freedom, but for the freedom of our family, for the freedom of our coworkers, for the freedom of people that aren't here. Because when Paul and Silas worshiped, they got set free, the jailer got set free, and the jailer's family got set free. Now we want freedom for those around us. Would you stand with me? That right now in your midnight hour, you would just begin to say, oh, praise your name, Jesus. And as we praise his name, Jesus, would you extend liberation beyond these walls to the people we're gonna encounter at lunch today, the people we're gonna see at work tomorrow. Jesus, would you set people free all around us, Jesus? Jesus.